Greetings, one and all. Welcome back for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast, made possible by a generous support. I'm Mills, editor in chief of Naval History Magazine. Glad to have you back for another installment. Um, today, we've got a very special guest. The first prize winner in the 2022 CNO Naval History Essay Contest is joining us. Um, we had him in the studio uh, live after the um, ceremony. Um, uh, last year, but it's great to have him back now that the magazine is actually out. And what we're talking about today is the cover story of the current issue of Naval History. Um, getting a lot of good feedback on this one because it takes a look at uh, one of the key components, of course, of the saga of the Pacific War is the emerging role of air power as a crucial factor in combat and in victory and in everything else. And what um, our guest today did for his uh, contest entry was look at one subset of air power in the Pacific War, and that is marine air power and its role in the overall struggle and how that role went way beyond uh, what marine doctrine might have led one to assume about what marine air did in the Pacific War. So joining us to talk about the Marine Corps' air war over the Pacific is Lieutenant Colonel Peter F. Owen, U.S. Marine Corps retired. Pete, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks very much, Eric. I'm tickled to be here. Oh, great. Well, it's nice to see you again. And um, as we're getting into 2023 and thinking back of the events of 1943 and, uh, uh, you know, Halsey busting his way up to Solomon's while MacArthur's forces are coming up around New Guinea. They're trying to do this one-two punch and come in on Rabaul. There's a lot of... Um, action heating up in the Pacific, and a lot of that has to do with air power. So um, let's talk about marine air power in World War II in the Pacific. Um, why don't you set the table for us with a little bit of doctrinal origin and what, how that evolved in the actual realities of war? Yeah, that sounds like a great place to start, Eric. I, I, I was, uh, you know, I was a Marine for, I was in the Marine Corps for 22 plus years, and ever since I went to boot camp, it was drilled into me that everybody in the Marine Corps supports the rifle and for aviation, that's always meant, Hey, close air support, you know, scraping your bellies along the beach to, uh, to suppress and destroy the enemy. So the infantry can advance. And that's really what the Marines wanted their air power to do. Um, ever since the 1920s, AA Cunningham had said the only reason for aviation to exist in any organization was to support troops on the ground. And that was really codified, if you will, in doctrine, where the mission of Marine Corps aviation was very clearly, by long before the, the outbreak of World War II, the, the mission of Marine Corps aviation was to support the fleet Marine force in landing operations. And then they had a secondary mission, which was to provide a reserve for carrier aviation. So that in other words, their planes, their pilots, all of their stuff would be available if needed to go aboard carriers and work with the fleet. And that's really how the Marine Corps had developed its aviation and its doctrine really focused on doing those things. And of course the, the America's strategy war plan orange for the Pacific war was, Hey, we're going to seize and defend these advanced bases on islands throughout the Pacific to support the fleet as it uh, as it progressed across the ocean. So what would the marine aviation be doing? Well, during the landing, we're going to be supporting the Marines who are assaulting the beach. And then once we've seized the island, well, they will be there to help protect the landing force and help 
uh, defend the island against any counterattacks that may come along. So that was the theory. Now that ran into some really difficult problems for planners as they developed warplane orange because uh, the Marine Corps being part of the Navy and because they had that secondary mission to be a reserve for naval aviation had nothing but carrier aircraft. And of course the Navy only had a handful of aircraft carriers and they had full complements of Navy planes. So the planners kind of realized, hey, if we don't have carriers on which to put these Marine aircraft, then it, it's going to be the Navy air groups that are going to be supporting the initial phases of the landing. Why? Because the distances in the Central Pacific where they were planning this drive across were just too vast for the, for the pilots, for the planes of 1940, 1941. There was just no way that you could support a landing from land-based aviation at these vast distances and the Gilberts, the Marshalls, uh, and, and, and all the way through Micronesia. So that was pretty much where they stood at the beginning of the war. In the beginning of the war, the Marine Corps aviation was very small. Two air groups, each one of about six or seven squadrons, one in Quantico and one in San Diego. The one in San Diego, when the Pacific Fleet moved out to Hawaii, moved out there with them. So that's pretty much where they stood. Doctrinally, Marine aviation was to support the landing force, but logistically, uh, they didn't have the means to put them in a position to do that. So they recognized that Marine aviation really isn't going to be able to support the landing force until after we seize an airfield and we can bring them in. So that, that's pretty much where we were at the beginning of the war, Eric. Right. It's interesting how Marine Air was always determined to have that primary focus be what it is. But as you point out, there are antecedents to this in World War One, where, in fact, uh, Marine Air, uh, under the umbrella of uh, British air power in that war, was used for a variety of functions in addition to its sole, you know, stated idea of existing to support the troops on the ground. Right. So it's almost like Marine Air always never could help but end up being improvised for other yep. things as well. Yeah, they had done some neat things during the uh, the wars of intervention between World War One and World War Two down in Latin America, particularly, and they'd done some great innovation with things like dive bombing techniques in support of ground troops. But um, but certainly nothing in an amphibious operation uh, that was uh, that was they weren't able to achieve their aspirations. Mm -hmm. Right. So it, the secondary mission is um, as sort of a backup to uh, naval air. And in fact, by the end of the war, once you dug down into the stats, it was clear that um, the Marine Air Wing had done more of that than their doctrinal primary mission. Had they not, they actually yeah. doing the secondary thing more. Yes, I think I think it's 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 easier to say they weren't just acting as a reserve for the fleet, but Marine aviation was a supporting arm to the fleet, mm -hmm. um, a land-based supporting arm for far more than it was a supporting arm to the ground element of a landing force. And and, and what I hoped to do in my in my article here was try and quantify that because it was something I sort of suspected. I read a lot about the Pacific War. I was familiar with what the Marine Corps had done and what Marine Corps aviation, where they'd been and what they'd been doing. But I thought, you know, let's try and quantify this. So there was about almost 100 squadrons that the Marine Corps deployed to the Pacific throughout World War II. And I said, well, let's let's look at each what each one of these squadrons was doing throughout their time in the Pacific. And I tried to measure it by months. I thought that was a good way of getting 
my arms around, hey, what are we doing? Uh, what's our mission during this deployment? What's the, what are the operations this squadron is conducting? So I built this huge spreadsheet for these 99 squadrons, and I counted up. And, and, um, and Sherrod's book, History of Marine Aviation, was very helpful, kind of got me started filling in a lot of the blanks on the spreadsheet. And then I had to go into the war diaries and actually pull up individual squadrons and say, okay, I know they were, say, in the Solomons for these three months. What were they doing there? And I was able to pull that up. So the, the, the end result was I figured out the Marine Aviation, Marine squadrons supported the fleet in some role about five times as much as they supported a landing force during the Pacific War. And when I say a landing force, I don't just mean the fleet marine force. I also include in that army troops, both um, Central Pacific and also in the Southwest Pacific. Primarily in the Southwest Pacific, there was a lot of marine aviation in support of the 6th Army in the Philippines. And, and the, they were very well lauded and appreciated. But still, when you count up all this effort, all these squadrons going to the Pacific, what were they doing? They were supporting the fleet. And I think that's really at the heart of what we're going to talk about here uh, in, in, in this discussion. Yeah, yeah. So this dynamic first manifests itself in the um, campaign for the Solomons in 43. Uh, why don't we talk about the Marine Air and the Solomons campaign? Because they really come yeah. into the room here. Right. And I think this is probably the, the most important contribution that marine aviation made to the Pacific War effort. And, and if you think about the, the, the Solomon's campaign, everybody's heard the term, I think, island hopping. Well, what was marine aviation doing in this? Well, first marine aviation would come into a place like Henderson Field on Guadalcanal and help gain and maintain air superiority to protect the landing force, yes, but really the landing force wasn't really a target for Japanese aviation. Japanese aviation was going after the airfield and they were going after uh, the fleet offshore that was trying to protect and sustain the landing force. So, so marine aviation was in fact supporting the fleet with fighter cover. And then what also they were doing was they had scout bomber squadrons that were attacking Japanese ships to, uh, to intercede and help attain sea control. Uh, they were doing that in conjunction with naval aviation and also Army Air Force aviation that was also operating from Henderson Field. And then once Guadalcanal was secure, um, then we could then they went back. Um, they would move up the slot and begin the process anew. So American aviation, primarily marine aviation, would gain and maintain air superiority over the next island. Um, and, if you want, you could throw that map back up there. I think that's a good way to show it. So they're moving from southeast to northwest here. So they seized the Russell Islands, and then they set up an airfield there. And then there was a very long and bloody battle to seize New Georgia in the summer of 1943. So again, marine aviation gains and maintains air control, which enables the fleet to come in and, and achieve sea control around that island and conduct an amphibious operation. And then the landing force can come in and seize an area and set up an airfield. And once the airfield's secure, marine aviation moves in and they begin the process anew. So they go from Guadalcanal to the Russells to New Georgia and then Bella La Bella. And then they make a really important jump up to Bougainville towards the end of 1943. I think D-Day was right around the 1st of December. And then once we have marine aviation 
established on Bougainville, they're now within range of Rabaul. And at the same time, in the Southwest Pacific, MacArthur's Army and Army Air Forces have been advancing up through New Guinea and onto New Britain. So now we have an aerial pincer, if you will, where we can where we have Army aviation coming up from New Guinea and New Britain and Marine aviation coming up from Bougainville and fast carriers coming in to basically neutralize Japanese air power in and around Rabaul. And once that happens, Rabaul has been neutralized. And that achieves the major objective of the entire Solomon's campaign. Yeah, as, as uh, Morrison put it, breaking the Bismarck's barrier. Right. That, uh, it's important for uh, listeners to uh, re recollect how uh, much of a thorn in the side Rabaul was. That was a major Japanese base. And that uh, two-prong uh, attack toward it, it's, it's, they put so much uh, firepower at Rabaul. By the time it's all said and done, they're able to just kind of bypass it instead of trying to like go in there and Absolutely. conquer it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's a there's another uh, accomplishment here that I think we need to acknowledge. Um, you know, uh, Captain Wayne Hughes talks about naval warfare ultimately being a war of attrition. And in the Solomons, it was absolutely true that what the United States was able to do with its air powers break the back of na Japanese naval aviation by shooting down their aircraft and killing their pilots. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese, of course, were not able to replace their pilots in the same methodical large scale that the United States was. So not only neutralizing Rabaul, but destroying Japanese naval aviation was an important accomplishment of the Solomon's campaign. And Marine aviation, particularly those Marine fighting squadrons, claimed a disproportionate share of aerial victories of the different American and New Zealand squadrons that were fighting in the Solomons. Yeah, that's a really key point, Pete. Um, it was not so much the conquered, uh, uh, expanding conquered territory um, moving in up the Pacific, but it was wiping out the enemy's capabilities to keep launching a thing. Not only were they unable to train their pilots fast enough, and you know, they're bereft of them by 44, 45, sure. all but sure. uh, their airplane production couldn't keep up with this. I, I recently saw a graph about this. It's just, it's so shocking, the contrast. If you look at aircraft production, U.S. versus Japan, by, you know, 44, we're, the, the graph line is spiking on the U.S., and Japanese are like, oh. not like it's a little teeny amount. They just can't they can't keep up with uh, the lost aircraft and the lost airmen as well. And that's yeah. what really pays out in the end, isn't it? It is. It is. And I know some folks uh, who are big fans of the Pacific War and study this a lot are saying, now, wait a minute. I know the Marines were conducting close air support in the Solomons. You know, well, I'm not trying to say that didn't happen at all, but it actually didn't happen very much. So the Marine Corps was still trying to get itself organized to provide close air support. They didn't have the control units. It was very difficult to do with fast moving aircraft over small jungle islands where it was difficult to distinguish where the friend and the foe were. And so what I did was I looked at, well, who was providing that close air support and how much of it, what they were doing. And, and I gave the benefit of the doubt to any squadron that provided any close air support at any time during a month in the Solomons. I counted that as a month they were supporting the landing force and not the fleet. And, and it still only came out to be about 2% of the marine aviation effort in the, 
in the solvents. It was overwhelmingly what marine aviation was doing was they were killing Japanese aircraft in the sky and they were attacking Japanese airfields and bases and ships on the surface. That's a, that's an amazing um, disparity between the missions. But you you know you go where the where you're needed and you ride to the sound of the guns and uh, that's marine air through the war. So the Solomon's campaign, long and hard fought, but ultimately a success uh, with the neutralization of Rabaul. At that point, it's on to the Western Pacific, and uh, marine air plays a big part there as well, correct? Why don't you talk about that? That's, right. That's right. They they had, in 1944, marine air had kind of missed the whole Central Pacific drive because of those vast distances we were talking about earlier. And the Marine Corps wasn't able to operate from carriers um, so it was all naval aviation that was supporting the landing forces in places like Tarawa and Kwajalein and, and, uh, and Saipan, Tinian, Guam, all those places. But then when we get back to the Western Pacific, now distances are closer together in the Southwest Pacific. So um, as the U.S. Army starts to land in the Philippines, the Marine Corps starts providing close air support squadrons in large numbers to support the 6th Army in the Philippines because that archipelago goes close together. So you can operate from one airfield and strike targets in support of the Army later on. But also what the Marine Corps is able to do with the Navy is finally Marine squadrons are getting aboard carriers. Now, the reason that hadn't happened was because the Marine Corps was so busy channeling pilots and planes to its squadrons in the Solomons throughout 1943 that the Navy and the Marine Corps had kind of agreed, hey, let's not tie up our aircraft carriers qualifying Marine aviators for carriers. We'll just use Navy pilots to fly from the carriers. Even though there was a lot of escort and light carriers available that could have uh, carried Marine squadrons, they, weren't, they hadn't been qualifying Marine aviators to operate from them. But as we get towards the end of 1944, something new has happened, which is the Japanese are using suicide planes to attack the American fleet. That means the American fleet needs more anti-air defense, which means they're going to increase the proportion of the air groups aboard their fast carriers to have more fighters and fewer torpedo bombers. But when the Pacific fleet looks around, they realize we're shorthanded when it comes to fighter planes. And you know what's a really good fighter plane for shooting down these suicide planes? The Corsair. And you know who's got Corsairs? The Marines. And they're not really doing a whole lot with them in 1944. So towards the end of 1944, the uh, Navy qualifies eight Corsair squadrons, Marine Corsair squadrons, to fly off the fast carriers. And they deploy with Task Force 58. Now, they provide close air support for the first three days of the Iwo Jima landing. Uh, but then Task Force 58 leaves and, and close air support for the remainder of that bloody battle is all being done by Navy and eventually Army P-51 Mustangs. Then we, the Marine Corps lands on Okinawa. That's a very long battle in which the, uh, the Marines seized the airfield the first day there at Kadena. So Marine aviation is brought in in mass into Okinawa and actually achieves that doctrinal aspiration that the Marine Corps had had since A.A. Cunningham had been talking about it in the 1920s, which is we have Marine aviation in support of the landing force in a sustained battle, providing excellent support 
and being a great force multiplier for the landing force. That was an excellent use of Marine aviation where the Marine Corps finally got to do what it was that it thought its purpose was. Um, but at the same time, while all of those squadrons are operating on Okinawa, the eight Corsair squadrons are still with Task Force 58 and they are providing air protection to the fleet from those suicide planes that are coming in from the mainland and from China. I'm the mainland and from Japan and, and from Formosa. And then they're also striking targets ashore in China and in Japan to uh, both defeat the suicide plane threat and also to prepare for the invasion of Japan. So even there at the end, while the Marine Corps is finally achieving that doctrinal aspiration of providing sustained close air support to the Marine divisions ashore, we still have the Marine, Marine aviation supporting the fleet in anti-air defense and in strikes in large numbers. That's a heck of a story. You mentioned Task, task Force 58. Um, that's that's always a um, illustrious story to revisit, Task Force 58, the Pacific War. And uh, well, more to come on that in the magazine in the year ahead, folks. Uh, keep that in mind. Uh, stay tuned for that. So this is such a great topic. And like most of these topics, when you get talking to somebody like you about them, who's like mm -hmm. done this work on them, it just gets you so interested in them, like down in the details again. And there's such a rich body of Pacific War literature, uh, historiography. Uh, you can fill whole shelves just in the Pacific War. Forget World War II at large. You could fill two right. rooms with that, right? What What would you recommend? I mean, people are listening to this. They're probably getting all excited. They're gonna read if they haven't already read your article. They're gonna read it. They might have already read it. Yep. What would what are some just like off the cuff recommendations? Uh, there's some kind of marine air classics of the Pacific War. You mentioned Sherrod's book, right? So Sherrod's. Every time I start to talk to somebody, they remind me, or they ask me, or they make sure that I've read Sherrod's book. My copy of Sherrod is dog-eared and highlighted, and the spine is broken. It's a really excellent book that Sherrod accomplished. Really, a great service to the Marine Corps. Uh, it, right after the Second World War. So it's very detailed, very factual. Full title of that for the listeners? Yeah, hold on a second. Here we go, folks. Yep. So it is History of Marine Corps Aviation in World War II by Robert Sherrod. Oh, hand me that book. I want to look at that right now. Yeah. That looks, yeah, that's the starting point right there, folks. What are some other? There's a good Corsair. Uh, who did uh, Corsair? Eric Tillman. Corsair so, book. He wrote biographies of aircraft. He wrote a biography. Of, mm -hmm. He wrote Corsair. He also wrote one on Wildcat. Yeah. He's also written a, a book about um, marine aces in the Pacific and now one on marine squadrons in the Pacific. So right. all of those are extremely helpful, very well researched, very well written and exciting reads. Top stuff. Absolutely. And yeah. Uh, yeah, come to NIP for those. But yeah, the course, you, I thought of his Corsair book when you started talking about their... Um, their important role in fighting the kamikazes back. Mm. Um, anything else that jumps to mind, you know, just, sure. just on the level of being a buff, what are some Pacific yeah. words that resonate for well, you? Who recognize this? This is a Naval Institute publication, the first team. Um, great book. It is Naval Institute, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah it's us. Yep. Yep. So John Lundstrom's book, the first team, and then the first team at Guadalcanal. Uh, great detail because Lundstrom really explains 
what Navy fighting tactics were, and by extension, Marine fighting tactics, and how they train pilots to execute those tactics. So mm -hmm. that they really gets into the details in a fascinating sort of way. Um, another book, I'm, I think you know, I'm working on. Uh, I'm continuing with my study, Marine aviation. So, um, so this book by Gregory Irwin, um, "Facing Fearful Odds: The Siege of Wake Island." just a wonderful book, but an important aspect of marine aviation that we didn't really get into was when the war breaks out, the, the fleet is using, and I say the fleet is using marine squadrons to defend these isolated islands, Wake, Midway that people are, have heard of and they're familiar with because there was battles there, but also Palmyra and Johnston Atoll and Samoa and Fiji, and also for old time Oahu. So marine aviation is paired up with these marine defense battalions to keep the lines of communication between the West Coast and Hawaii and Australia open. And that's another aspect where marine aviation is supporting the fleet and it's defending these islands. And for most of the squadrons that are consumed with this mission, not seeing a lot of action, Wake Island and Midway being the two exceptions. But Irwin's book on Wake Island is tremendous. Great. He interviewed a lot of... Uh, there you go. Somebody. There's some great recommendations there, Pete. Now, let's talk about... You've got a couple of books you've done. Uh, you, your sure. books so far are published on World War One. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those? Sure, sure. So World War One was my first fascination, and, and that's where I really jumped into writing. So about 15 years ago, I wrote a book called To the Limit of Endurance, and it's about... Uh, the 2nd Battalion, 6 Marines in the First World War. And I tried to look at the battalion, not just saying here's who they were and where they went and what they did, but also sort of like Lundstrom does with the first team is try and get into, well, what was the doctrine that they were trying to execute? How well did they train their officers and men to do this doctrine? And how did they adapt on the Western Front? So, uh, so it was a fun book. I tried to write the kind of book that I would want to read, and I see, think I succeeded there. I published a couple um, memoirs by World War I Marine Corps veterans. So mm -hmm. I really just, you know, annotated, edited, got, some, got a friend of mine to do the maps and things like that. Um, and then uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Swift and I wrote a, a monograph for the Marine Corps uh, about the Battle of Blank Mont. And um, uh, that came out, oh, about three years ago. And it was published by the Marine Corps History Division. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to seeing those now that I'm aware of them um, from your curriculum vitae. Well, um, this is a great piece that you did. You did some really good historical digging and uh, coming up with some new ways to look at this uh, with greater detail. So it was a worthy uh, winner of the CNO Naval History Thank essay. Thank you very much. It's quite an honor. Well, um, how did it feel to win that uh, when you first found out? Well, I was, I, I was thrilled. I was certainly surprised, but I was delighted. Um, and I, I, I will say this, um, you know, this, this article is clear. It's an extension of the dissertation I'm working on at the Royal Military College. And, and I chose this topic of Marine Aviation World War II because I really wanted to work on something that would be relevant. It wouldn't just be a dissertation that I wrote and my supervisor read and, and nobody else ever read again, but I want to turn it into 
a book someday that would be interesting, but also relevant to the Naval services today. Well, that's kind of what the CNO essay contest is all about. So when I saw that, I said, oh, I should be able to fit what I'm working on into that essay contest. And I got a great feeling of validation that I had accomplished that. And so it was great. It was really thrilling. I got the really cool award, which you can see over my right shoulder here uh, with the little plate, copper plate from USS Constitution. Very neat. So greatly impressed my wife, too, which is always important around the Owen house. Yeah, having the CNO hand you an award and then, you know, all that, that's, that gives you some uh, bonus points, I would think. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, I would uh, remind you, Pete, and also to all those out there in uh, Naval History Podcast land that uh, we're about to ramp up on uh, this year's upcoming CNO Naval History Essay Contest. So stay tuned for uh, in the next March-April issue for all the details on that. But that's coming up, folks, so bear it in mind. It's a, definitely a contest worth throwing your hat in if you've got something viable. And uh, Pete, do you think you'll enter it again? I know you're kind of busy with your dissertation. Sure. Or whatnot, but I, I am kind of busy. I'll see if I've got something that's that's worthy. It's very competitive, so it's not something that you can just um, give a half-hearted effort to and expect to get anywhere with. There was some really, really impressive essays last year, I know, and, uh, and I was very lucky to be selected. There were indeed, and um, yours is the first we're launching with uh, in the magazine, but there will be more to follow. Um, in fact, stay tuned next issue for the next one, folks. Uh, but I highly recommend Pete's article. It's um, a real standout piece in what is a pretty standout issue uh, in terms of a variety of content. And the piece is called The Marine Corps' Air War Over the Pacific. It's in the current issue of Naval History Magazine, available on newsstands today if you don't have your copy yet. Um, so, um, there you go, folks. Pete, thank you for joining us again. It's been great to talk with you and, uh, hope you have a great 2023 and hopefully we'll be talking again soon. Thank you very much, Eric. Thanks to everybody there at the Naval Institute. This has just been a wonderful experience for me. Well, for us as well. Um, thanks again. I guess that's it for us this time, folks, but, um, we'll be back again soon with another podcast. Until then, um, continue to be a part of the discussions um, on history past, present, and future. You can um, do that through our magazine, but also, of course, our sister and flagship publication, U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings. To be a part of all this um, discussion and uh, in the mix of what's being talked about, I invite you to be a member of the Naval Institute. If you're not already, um, you definitely want to be. And until next time, folks, this is Eric Mills signing off. Fare thee well.